This idea of memorized language has a, a huge, ancient, powerful, lasting benefit. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So this podcast, Andrew, is intended to be a homeschool 101 podcast. So we have families that are thinking that maybe they'd like to homeschool. They have friends. They maybe are already homeschooling. They have friends that are thinking about it. Maybe, you know, just all kinds of opportunities now for people to explore different options. And so we've started doing every 10 episodes, homeschool 101. So although this content could be general and useful for everyone, we're specifically going to gear this to those who are considering or are brand new to homeschooling, maybe brand new to our podcast. Maybe well, they've never I, heard anything I we've think, done. I think, no, having an idea of what we're going to talk about, yes. I, I really would challenge the idea that there's any limit on the usefulness of this right. subject matter. Agreed. Any parent, which would include probably a majority of school teachers, our yes. parents. Yes, yes. Any grandparent. Mm-hmm. Any older sibling, any student of any age would benefit from understanding Yes, whatever it, we're going to talk about. Whatever <laughs> we're going to talk about, this mystery here. And the title of this podcast is The Two Most Important Things. And we say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because of how you say that. I know. And of course, most indicates a superlative can you really have two most? You know, I learned an interesting thing the other day. Hmm. The word priority was not used in the plural form oh. until the mid-1900s. Oh, interesting. Because priority would be one thing mm -hmm. above all else. But now we can have multiple priorities, Yep, which goes right along with our multitasking. Yes, it's true. So what are the two most important things, Andrew, that an educator, home, parent, grandparent, or otherwise? Well, we have to bring focus to this. Otherwise, we yeah, run right. the risk of being challenged mm -hmm. because you could say, well, food is more important than what we're going to talk about. Right. But in the context of language development, in the context of Nurturing Excellent Communication Skills, Yes, which is our bailiwick. Yes. <laughs> I would put these as the two most important things. Okay. And, you know, anyone who's listened to one of my talks on the four arts of language, cultivating language arts preschool through high school, these are all available. We should put links to that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But anyone who's even looked at our logo and website has probably noticed we have a tagline. Mm -hmm. Listen speak, read, write, think. Well, most people would call us the writing program. Right. Right, because that's what we're most well known for. And mm -hmm. secondarily, probably grammar. 
mm-hmm. which is right in there with composition, composition sure. grammar. But part of what I came to realize long ago, early in this, was no matter how good your system for output is, right, no matter how good you think your curriculum is, you won't get something out of the brain that isn't in there to begin with. So if what you want is children to use reliably correct and appropriately sophisticated language when they write, you have to be sure that you've got a rich source of reliably correct and appropriately sophisticated language coming into the brain. And I started to think possibly that's where many teachers and schools and that's where we're not doing what we could and should be doing. Right. And so then no matter how good our writing system is, if the words aren't in there, how are you going to get them out? If the grammar isn't in there, just knowing parts of speech and being able to label prepositional phrases isn't going to make you competent in using exactly. that syntax. Yep, yep. So that's why I started this talk a long time ago, and then I wrote a summary of the talk called One Myth and Two Truths. Right, and I just want to share a little story, if I can insert this little story about how I first became acquainted with this topic, and... That was right around 1999, 2000. I was working at the time for Biola University, and you had started to do workshops for our parents and teachers in the program that I was running. And you were very excited, and you were sharing with me over the phone. I remember sitting in a parking lot, hearing all this stuff, writing all this down, and just going, this is amazing. Yes, we need to host you giving this talk. (laughs) And wow, so that was before you wrote the article, and the article, of course, you can find it in our book, However Imperfectly, your book that you wrote. And this is a collection of articles that you wrote, and we have them organized chronologically. So the oldest one is in the back, and the newest one is... And that's way toward the back. It is one of the very last articles, but that means it's one of the first that you wrote. One myth and two truths. So, so so the one myth is the thing I discovered a lot of school teachers would believe or say or kind of allude to mm-hmm. is this idea that if kids would just read more, writing would automatically improve. Sure. I've heard that. And, you know, there's a certain logic to it. Mm-hmm. But the obvious problem, which is much more of an obvious problem now than it was when I wrote that thing 20-some years ago is that very few kids do read Mm, at all. It's true. And I've talked to school teachers who basically say, I don't even assign books Mm. because nobody reads them. Mm. The actual reading that happens in most kids' lives right now is that which is going to happen in class. Oh. mm -hmm. And the teachers even feel guilty about that. Like, well, you know, we have to get ready for the tests or whatever. So just people are not reading literature Mm -hmm. in even a small fraction of the quantity that they were 20 years ago, which was a small quantity compared to 100 years before that. Mm -hmm. So it would be nice if all kids would just spend an hour a day reading, but it's not going to happen. Right, right. So I think that I wonder how much that is modeled. You know, my 
I have grandchildren, you have grandchildren, the parents of my grandchildren, they do read. They've got a stack of books on their nightstand. They're reading out loud to their kids all the time. They are readers. They were, and their parents read, meaning my husband and I, we are readers and we've got the stack of books on our nightstand. And oftentimes now because of the convenience of audio books, we will listen to books together, but we're still reading, right? Right. And I remember, and I know you talk about this, and maybe you're going to bring this up, but when I was in elementary school, I had a teacher, Mrs. Jensen, who would read to us Where the Red Fern Grows or some of these other great stories after recess. And we would just hear her read, and we just hated when she was done reading a chapter. We yeah. wanted her to read more. Yeah. And what it wasn't a lot of time, but, you know, 15 minutes a day, it's all we got. But that was just really— Well, in the pre-screen world— Children could either be bored mm-hmm. or read. Mm-hmm. Those were generally it's true. the two options you had when you couldn't do something else. Right. So most kids would read to assuage the pain of boredom. Mm-hmm. And now that's just not there anymore. There's no boredom pressure because 90-some percent of the kids will have a screen and they'll be occupied. Mm-hmm. But I mean, let's get back to the basics here. Why is it that good readers don't automatically become good writers? Because they don't. I'm sure many of our listeners have met a child who does read, reads a lot, reads all the time, but doesn't write the way you would expect that kind of literate person. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of just spend a bit of time observing children and talking to children, watching my own children, their friends. And I realized that kids who read a lot, they like it and they want to get through the stories and Mm -hmm. they want to kind of read books like you can watch a movie. It's just constantly going on and it's exciting and it's plot driven. So in order to satisfy that, they start to read faster and faster and faster. Sure. And when you start reading faster and faster – A few things happen. One is if you see a word that you don't quite know Mm -hmm. how you would pronounce it or even what it means, you kind of just skip it. Like, okay, you don't have to know what that word means to to still watch the movie, to still get the story. Or there's an idiom or an allusion to something Mm -hmm. or a person or a place historically mentioned and you don't know who that person is or where that place was or what that's referring to, then you skip that because you don't really need to know. It was it was there at the higher level of language, but it wasn't at the baseline of what's happening. Sure. Right? Yep. And then you, you even get to a point where you can see a whole sentence or two or three or a whole paragraph and almost instantly decide, is that paragraph important to the plot (laughs) or not? And if the answer is it's not, why bother, right? I mean, you're wanting to just live in the story. Yes. And increasingly, popular books have been written to be that way Mm. as opposed to books that are maybe, I would say, 100 to... 200 years old, Mm -hmm. people used to enjoy imagining things. Yes. So you'd get longer descriptions of 
scenes. Mm -hmm. You'd get longer descriptions of people. You get more backstory. You'd get more of kind of the contextual richness of the thing. Right. And you know, as our attention spans have shrunk, yes, our tolerance for that type of writing mm -hmm. has also decreased. Yes. And so now the most successful books are the ones that give you just enough you can imagine it and see it, but it's really plot-driven, mm -hmm. and you just want to know what's going to happen next. And then, you know, if an author is smart, they'll end the book with one plot ended, but the other one kind of hinted at and already started. Yes. So then the kid just like, I have to get this next book The right next book. <laughs> so, you know, the commercialization in a way, and that's mm. not particularly new. Some novels, you know, in the 1800s were published as serials. Yep. A lot of Dickens novels, they would come out in chunks and people would look forward to reading those chunks. So mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with creating that suspense or desire. Sure. But what we see is a simplification of the literature to a point where it doesn't have that same richness. Mm. And the richness isn't just experiential, it's linguistic as well. Oh, I see, sure. Like, why put a word in a book if there's a danger that many people won't understand that word? Mm -hmm. And they're not going to go find out what it means. So simplify the mm. language and you get better popular appreciation for what you've got. And, mm -hmm. and so I think that is one reason why good readers do not naturally or automatically become good writers. Sure. But the problem of nobody reading is actually now a much greater problem. Sure, sure. And the trick, as you mentioned, is we've got to go back to getting it in through the ear, mm -hmm. getting it in through the ear. And that is why you know, I have long said, and this is probably what I said to you on the phone when I was just formulating these thoughts sure. 25 years ago, is the most important thing that any parent or teacher can do in any given day to cultivate a good writer downline is reading out loud mm -hmm. from good and great literature. Mm -hmm. Generally, reading aloud at slightly above the decoding skill of the child because that's what brings up comprehension. So if there's a book that a kid can read and it may be kind of dumb, okay, well, they can practice their decoding skills sure. on whatever dumb little thing is floating around at the time. <laughs> but to attune them to more challenging language you have to read above their decoding level, above their sometimes even attraction level, mm. and just say, sit down, play with blocks, play with Legos, draw pictures, but I'm going to read this. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, what happens is if you're in the right zone, it may take them a little while to get into it. But once they're into it, they will want to continue to hear it. Yes, And they, in their soul, they instinctively know that it's good to do this. Mm -hmm. It's good to have something that stretches you a little bit. It's good to hear words that you might not pay attention to if you were just looking at them. And oftentimes when a good reader, 
and, and I think most adults can be pretty good readers mm -hmm. because we basically get this sense of language. So when we read it, we read it with a particular cadence and emphases and a nuance that doesn't ever come through on a printed page. It's up to the individual reader to somehow internally audiate that nuance. Yes. Whereas reading out loud provides all that. Yes. I heard a study that the number one predictor of people becoming adults who like to read hmm. is having been read to a lot when they were children. Well, that totally confirms the one of the two most important things. Yeah. The other thing that disturbs me is when I hear parents say that a teacher said, don't read to your kids, make them read it on their own. Hmm. If you read it to them, they won't want to read hmm. on their own, and then they won't learn to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no there's no support for this mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. you know, it makes me sad when parents have got this type of faulty logic, sure. I guess, sure. from a teacher somewhere along the line. Sure. So, yeah. So, anyway, if you want a good writer, if you want a database of language, if you want improved reading comprehension— if you want a more literate person mm -hmm. exposed to a broader range of vocabulary and ideas, reading out loud as much as you can, as much time as you can afford every day. Yes. That's by far the best, most important thing that you can do. Great. Now, there's another thing that you talk about in this article, the two most important things. The thing. two most important things. <laughs> so... Listening. We talked a little bit about that. You're mm -hmm. going to cultivate listening skills. Sure. Speaking. Mm -hmm. Okay. So people get confused. In English, we have two words that are almost synonymous, but not quite. Speaking and talking. Talk, speak. Well, everybody talks. Unless you have a, a disability, mm -hmm. everyone talks. Speaking it has a different nuance. It mm -hmm. has a certain formality to it. You speak to someone. You speak about something. There's an intentionality yes. that goes with the definition of the word. And how do you cultivate that? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways that that has been cultivated through all of history, from sure. probably about the beginning of recorded history until 70, 80 years ago, mm -hmm. was people would memorize language. Oh, sure. They would memorize history. They would memorize scriptures from whatever tradition they had. Mm -hmm. They would memorize poetry. They would memorize music. And you can go all the way back to the ancient pro-gymnasmata mm -hmm. and the teaching of rhetoric and what did they do? They memorized the poetry and portions of history that had been written and speeches that had been given by others. They memorized this to furnish their mind mm -hmm. with the language that would allow them to then do whatever they wanted to do, to write a speech or write a poem or write a history or talk and argue more effectively mm -hmm. 
to communicate more eloquently. And so this idea of memorized language has a, a huge, ancient, powerful, lasting benefit. And we've pretty much lost it. Yeah. It was Deweyism mm. misguided. Mm-hmm. You know, Dewey had his little experimental school at the University of Chicago, and he came up with his theories, not all of which I would disagree with. I mean, sure, he said a few good things, but his basic idea was education had to really be about discovery and exploration and inquisitive activity and spontaneous self-expression. And this is what we had to all really work toward. That's not entirely wrong, but when you do that and it supplants or eclipses the development of basic skills needed for inquiry and self-expression and exploration. So unfortunately, the Deweyism that resulted in the modern progressive attitude about memory Mm -hmm. was that at best it's a waste of time. And at worst, forcing children to memorize rote learning, that could be harmful. Right. And of course, as you're saying that, I'm thinking whenever you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. And when you're describing what Dewey, the initial ideas, I'm like, well, those are good things. But at what expense? And I would think that you would be able to do the discovery, the innovations much better if you have the foundation. Well, I mean, that's what we see in all disciplines. Sure. Is that creativity Mm -hmm. only happens on the foundation of basic skills. Yep. Without the basic skills, you don't get any quality creativity happening. And unfortunately, I think we can look around the world and see some fairly low level of creativity being thrust into the marketplace and everyone just accepting this now because there's there's no aesthetic discernment. Sure. Because there isn't that same foundation of basic skills that everyone had Mm -hmm. that allowed them to be creative in their way and allowed them to accurately appraise, right? I mean, if you know nothing about art, well, how are you going to know if it took skill and effort to produce that art? Sure. Right? So everyone should know something about art in order to appreciate Mm -hmm. art. How are you going to learn? Through imitation. Right. Right? Same thing with language. If you don't have your mind furnished, how are you going to apprehend things? Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting back to the more practical aspect, memorization of language is de facto good for the brain. Yes. De facto. In fact, you could memorize things that are completely useless from a practical point of view, and it would still be good for your brain. Mm. And it would still expand your vocabulary in whatever language you were doing it. Sure. And even more importantly, it moves words from a passive vocabulary, i.e., I can read or hear that word and kind of know what it means, into the active vocabulary. I can use this word. I can speak it or write it with confidence. And that is a huge shift right there. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, a lot of things that we get environmentally being read to, for one, reading other stuff, hearing randomly, it stocks up our passive vocabulary. But how often have you heard a word and then kind of just forgot it? Sure. And then the next time you saw it or heard it, you're like, well, I should know what that means, but I don't. And then you're too busy to worry about it. But if you had to memorize a passage that used that word and maintain that memorized passage Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for any length of time, you would now own those words. Yes. There's a completely different experience. I'll give you a humorous example from my childhood. Okay. I grew up spending a lot of time on a sailboat before there was any technology that you could have. We didn't even have a radio. Honestly, it was hmm. it was like for emergency purposes. Sure. But we didn't listen to a radio. So there's no entertainment. And there we are over at Catalina Island, you know, two nights, three nights, sometimes four nights, nothing to do except books. And so while my mother read stories and books to to me and to my sister, my father read poems. Hmm. And so I started kind of just liking poems because I kept hearing the same ones week after week, month after month, and some of them were humorous, and and kids like things that are humorous or dramatic. And so there was this one poem, and I just thought, that's so good. And, And it took me a while to get it, but I memorized it. I was probably 12 years old, I'm guessing, maybe 13. And I'm going to say the poem. Not everyone's going to recognize this. But it goes like this. Scintillate, scintillate, globule vivific. Fain would I ponder thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious. Strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. Well, if you didn't recognize that, I'll just sing it for you and you'll get it. Scintillate, scintillate, globule vivific. Fain would I ponder thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious, strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. Well, you know, everybody knows Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I played Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the violin before I have any memory of doing so. And I learned that poem. And then I noticed that I had these new words yes. that I could use, such as capacious. Like, how many 13-year-olds would ever know <laughs> right. or use this word? Right. Or fain. Mm-hmm. Or even words like ponder, mm-hmm. right? Or carbonaceous. Mm-hmm. And so these words from the memorized poem got into my active vocabulary. And, and there are many, many other examples of this. And I was particularly attracted to poems that had kind of sophisticated vocabulary, you know, because when you're 13 years old, you want to sound smart. So, you know, it's very interesting. And, and I, could, I could spend an entire podcast just telling people stories of how I have seen memorized language patterns come out in the spoken and written communication of kids and people. Sure. And sadly, we just don't, we don't live in a nursery rhyme culture anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't live in a read poetry to each other culture Mm -hmm. anymore. And then the poetry we do read, we think, oh, it has to be emotionally impactful or it has to be, you know, some kind of deeper transcendent value to make it worth. Mm -hmm. No. Where do you start with kids? Nursery rhymes. Sure. Where do you start? Tongue twisters. Sure. I got a a video on my phone 
from one of my grandchildren reciting a tongue twister. Oh, nice. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? He would chuck all the wood he could chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Well, you know, it's silly, but wow, think of what happens in the brain when you have to memorize this thing and keep it straight and understand and like, what does it even mean? To chuck wood, you right? Know? <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure any of us knows. Are you throwing it around? That's what Are it you sounds like biting it in half. But, <laughs> but this idea of memorization as a way to furnish the mind and store up words in the active vocabulary. Right. There's, there's nothing comes close. Yep. So, I say to homeschool parents, if you really want a person who will read well and write well if you read out loud to them and you memorize language, you'll get what you want on the other side mm -hmm. so much more easily, mm -hmm. so much more effectively, mm -hmm. so much more painlessly. Yep. It's an organic thing, these four arts of language. Yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.